Well, good morning, everyone. This morning, we're continuing in Gethsemane. Let me make a couple of preparatory comments. Uh, <clears throat> I don't have any template to follow. In other words, we're not following an outline of this is how you teach Gethsemane and this is what's in it. You know, in the first week, you do this second week. I have an instructor, the same instructor that each one of you has. And I want to emphasize this for each one of us today. I have an instructor. The First John says we have an anointing, the Holy Spirit. He is our teacher. Remember, he's called the helper and the teacher in John 14 and 15. And so we come to Gethsemane, and I get a real sense from the Lord, slow down and bring emphasis to Gethsemane. Okay. Now, my next question is, what am I to emphasize in Gethsemane? And so what I do is read, you know, some general information about Gethsemane from others. That's fine. But then I need to hear from the Lord specifically. The first week, talk about this. And so the first week, I talked about whatever it was. I can't remember. It was, what, uh, three weeks ago or so? And at the end of the class, sometimes I have a vague idea of where we're going. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes if I don't finish the class, I know where we're going next week because I didn't finish. And so, for instance, a week or so ago, and I was telling Gene this, we finished the class, <clears throat> and I'm thinking, I don't know what to say next. Uh, you know, what to say next. And so I have to ask the Lord, which is a good thing. And then I suppose within 20 seconds, boom, there it is. Then at last week, what's the same? Boom, there it is. And then for next week, how am I going to transition to, boom, there it is. Why do I share this? Because I want us to know that Peter Davidson is no more or less a child of God and has the Holy Spirit as every other person in Christ. And we must begin to learn on a greater way to live our lives this way, completely, absolutely, comprehensively, all the time, day by day, moment by moment, relying upon and looking to and actively asking and seeking and expecting to be led by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, who wants to be in a class that is just something that somebody put together for you? Father, thank you so much for leading us, ministering to us, speaking to us, caring for us, protecting us, providing for us, correcting us, encouraging us. So much, so much you do all by your Spirit. Father, this morning, as we always have to have, we ask for the anointing of your Spirit upon every one of us for this class, for the rest of this uh, time of celebration this morning and for the rest of our days, but specifically for the administration of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen.
So verses 36 to 39 in Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them, with the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Remember who the sons of Zebedee are? John and James. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death remain here and watch with me. And you remember last week what we talked about. We talked about Jesus entered the garden, horrified because of the taking on of the sin of his people, terrified because as a consequence of taking the sin of his people upon his shoulders, he would undergo what? The wrath of God. But his horror and his terror were intermixed with the joy of doing the Father's will. Do you remember that last week? Some of you were here. And so that's where we pick up today. He has entered the garden with a growing crescendo of horror and terror. And yet horror and terror mixed with joy. Now, I don't know how this works, but it was what was happening in the life of Jesus. And so Jesus enters the garden as the Son of Man. Now, remember, I want to make sure we get this. Jesus enters the garden as a man, as a human being, as a man. That doesn't deny the divinity of the Lord Jesus. That just accentuates his manhood, his humanity. He enters the garden as a son of man to do battle against the effects of the curse of death that came upon all humanity because of Adam's disobedience. Remember Genesis 2, 17, in the day that you eat of it, what? You shall surely die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, in Adam all died. So he enters the garden knowing this. And not only knowing it from the scriptures, but also beginning to carry the experience and the feeling and the emotion of this in his soul. And this is how he enters the garden. And so this is why Paul, well, I'm going to skip that. And so the result of being spiritually dead is that all of us have lost our ability to know anything of God other than he exists, and to certainly have fellowship with him. So Jesus enters the garden so the curse of sin and all of its effect may be able to be reversed on us, reversed, so that we, his people, can be redeemed from the curse, forgiven of our sins, and have fellowship with God as God has intended in the very beginning. Now, Jesus enters the garden with this purpose, to undo all the effects of Adam's disobedience and to break the power of the evil one. Remember, it came to destroy the one who has power over death. And so he enters as God's warrior. I want to emphasize that. This man enters the garden certainly as giving himself to be the sacrificial lamb of God. He certainly enters the garden being the submitted son. He enters the garden humbled, 
humbled in his obedience to God's will. But he also enters the garden as God's warrior. He has come to do battle against man's disobedience. He has come to do battle against the fallen nature of man that rejects God. He has come to do battle against all of the effects of the fall of Adam. And in that battle, he will take upon himself the curse of the law, the curse of disobedience, which is death. And in doing so, he will be obedient where no one else has been obedient. And in doing so, he will destroy all the works of the devil. You remember in 1 John 3, 8, for the Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. So let's make sure as we look at this man in the garden, this man who is humbled unto death, this man as we will see, I'm not sure next week or the week after next, this man whom we will see falling on the ground and collapsing, collapsing on the ground, being crushed by what was going on. This nevertheless, nonetheless, is God's warrior king. This is who this is. So we want to make sure we see Jesus in more of a totality of who he is and what he's doing than perhaps we've seen in the past. And so in Gethsemane, he comes to wage war against the root The root problem that resulted in all of humanity falling into the hands of Satan. And what is the root problem here? What was the root problem that Jesus came to deal with and to undo and to have victory over? What is that root problem? Disobedience. Disobedience brought sin into the world. That's the root problem. Satan is not the root problem. So don't blame it on Satan. The root problem is what? My disobedience, which I inherited from Adam. So let's make sure that when things happen in our lives, and we talked about this a little bit in the car this morning when I drive some of the fellas here. Let's make sure we don't see what's going on in us and the problems as someone else's fault. It's our fault first and primarily. Maybe exacerbated by others, certainly fanned or exacerbated, but the fault is still mine. Can you say amen? This means that anything and everything in my life that produces any reaction or activity of sin is My fault alone. So, husbands, don't look at your wives. Wives, don't look at your husbands. Single people, don't look around. You know where to look? Go home and look in the mirror and you'll see the fault. Amen? You'll see the fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. It's my fault. And Jesus came to undo that. 
He came to undo human disobedience through his own obedience. So when Jesus enters the garden, he is dressed for war. He's dressed for warfare. Now, you don't see this warfare dress because he's dressed spiritually. And because he's dressed spiritually, he's dressed emotionally. He's dressed intellectually. He's dressed physically. In other words, this man is able to enter the garden and do what he does because he is not only dressed for warfare, he has been and has remained dressed for warfare his entire life of ministry especially. Can you say amen? And so this is not something that as he goes into the garden of Gethsemane, quick, you have a shield, you have a sword, you have this and that. It's too late. It's too late. It's too late. I don't know, but I can at least surmise that every morning when Jesus woke up, and I have to remember this. You may be much better than I am, but I have to remember this. Every moment he woke up, this is going to be longer than I thought. Every moment, every day he woke up, I would surmise that Jesus had to recognize that he was a human being weak within his natural self to please or obey God. <gasps> weak within his natural self to what? Please through obedience to God. And as a result of that, every morning confessed his need for the empowerment and the armament of God by the Spirit. Every moment. Begin the day that way. Every day. I think I would be on good biblical ground to say, Jesus did not take a step. Did not say a word. Did not make a decision did not have a thought, et cetera, et cetera, apart from and independent of being in the full armor of God. And when we, we have to see this because the way Jesus lived as a human being is the way that God gives us to live victoriously by the Spirit, correct? It's the same way. And if this mighty man of God would never have done anything to the least extent without the purposeful decision, requesting and receiving and believing and submitting in and walking in the full armament of God's power by the Spirit. If he needed it, whew, how much more we need it. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. And what we're going to do today and next week and if I don't get through it all today we'll finish it next week I say that with tongue and cheek 
not knowing whether we will finish it, but we'll see if we'll finish it. And let's look, and this is a cursory look. Do you know what I mean by cursory? No, it doesn't mean cursing. It means just a quick overview, little snapshot of these seven aspects of the full armor of God. You thought there were six, but there's seven. You may have been taught there's seven pieces of armor, but you failed on the last piece, verse 18. So make sure you know there's seven aspects of the armor. Notice I didn't say pieces. I said what? Aspects of the armor. And what we want to do is to look at this revelation that the Holy Spirit gives to the Apostle Paul as he has introduced the theology of the church and has discussed what the church is and how to function within the, uh, within the context of being in Christ, in his church, the body of Christ. And he says, beginning in chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, finally, let me kind of draw this to a conclusion. In order to understand everything I've said in the first three chapters about the church and in chapters 4 to 6 about the living out of that life in the church, let me give you something here. You can't do it without having the armor of God. Amen. You can't do it without having the armor of God. And so that's what he's talking about here. So let's go through this one piece at a time. Jesus is dressed as he enters the garden. He doesn't get dressed as he goes to the garden. He continues to be dressed all his life. And he's dressed in the the armament of God in order to win this titanic cosmic battle of all eternity. This is the greatest battle of all eternity eternity in Gethsemane. There is no other battle like it. This is it. This battle sums up and completes every single battle that any believer will ever face. This is the battle. And in this battle, victory is won for us so that in our battles, we may also be victorious as he was, correct? So let's look at it. Verse 10, the apostle says, finally. This is the most important part of the whole section, 10 through 18. Too often, we, I want to get to the piece of what, what's the helmet? What, what is that sword? What is that? No, this is the most important verse right here. This is it. So you make sure you see this verse, even if we don't go any further today. This is the most important verse. This is a verse we should get up every day with and remain with all day long. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. His might. Let's make sure we get this inculcated into our minds and our hearts. Deeply rooted. Verse 10, Ephesians 6, is the command of the Holy Spirit to the church. Finally, fully, in conclusion, most importantly of all, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, the rest of it is going to give explanation to that verse. The rest of it is an exposition, if you would, or opening up or an unpacking of that particular verse. But this is the central verse. In order to be battling against the enemies of God. And the greatest enemy of God 
is me. Or I should say is I. I am the greatest enemy of God. If I had said, what is the greatest enemy of God? Most of us would say, say, say Satan. I'm the greatest enemy. Look in the mirror and you will see the enemy of God's work. This fleshly body in whom new creatures live. And it is this fleshly body that wars against the work of the Spirit. I just kind of summarize. What did I just summarize by the, that statement? Galatians five sixteen and 17, but you can write it down. In order to do battle against the enemies of God, Jesus had to find his strength, not in his natural abilities, but in the divine ability of God. If Jesus is to be victorious... Remember the captain of our salvation. You remember in Hebrews 2.10? I know other, I like the, uh, I like the uh, King James on that, the captain of our salvation. He needed divine strength, not human strength, not even perfect human strength. So we first see this. He needed to depend upon completely and totally the strength that comes only from God by the Spirit. You see, we did not we were not given the Holy Spirit to make our strength stronger. And I know how we think. Well, God is going to make me stronger and give me, and so, you know, and help me to be better. That's not what the Holy Spirit has done. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives to be the literal strength of my living. Right? He is in my life to be the literal strength, power of my living. He didn't come to kind of, let's have a, um, what do we, um, a joining together. Phage, your strength and his strength together. No, you ain't got no strength. He says to you, Phage, submit to me. Lay your, what you call your natural strength down at my feet. Don't look to it. Don't depend on it. Don't even consider it. And then allow me to come upon you and endue you with my power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, Acts 1.8. So first of all, let's make sure we understand the function of the Holy Spirit in me as to strength. It is the strength of God in me overcoming and working not with my strength because I don't have any, but working in me as I by faith submit to him and cooperate with him so that his strength becomes my own strength. Do we see that? So that his strength actually does become my strength. Let me just look at what I want to say here. So let's look at the seven aspects. I have pieces here, which I shouldn't have put that in there, of the armor. He's entering the battle. And he's entering it what? In the strength of the Holy Spirit. That's our first mistake, isn't it? We have a battle. Any of you doing it? Do do any of you have any battles in your life right now? If so, raise your hand. I'm serious. Any of you have any battles in your life whatsoever? 
Some of you should have ten hands raised. All of us have battles. All of us are guaranteed it. John 16, 33 guarantees we all have battles. Now, the battle begins. We hear the gunfire. We hear the howitzers going off. We see the explosions. We feel the heat, the smoke. There's a battle. And the first thing we do is begin to try to figure out what to do, where to go, how to go, why to go, when to go, right? We immediately get in our natural mode and immediately begin to discern naturally what's going on and who's doing what and why they did it and when they're going to do it and what happened and what, what was said about me and, and, and how was it going to... We immediately what? What word do I want? When we automatically go to something. Default. Thank you, Chris. We immediately default to the natural. Are you like I am? Immediately default to the natural. When what should our default be, Raul? The Spirit. Call upon the Spirit. And by the time we realize we're in the natural, we're so in far into this warfare and have been so beaten up and hit and worried, you know, and that, we have to almost be carried out by somebody. And then we begin to figure out, maybe I should have called upon the Holy Spirit, Billy. Well, I'm a man of God. I have the Spirit in me. Yes, you do. But we still have to do this. We have to call upon him and we have to make a decision. Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth, had to decide So let's ask God, Father, remind me that my default needs to be into your hands. Remind me, Father, my default needs to be into your strength. And if the moment the battle begins, our default is into the strength and the leadership and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit... I guarantee that the outcome in every one of our lives, 99.9999999% of the time, is going to be radically different than what we have experienced. Now, I don't say there won't be any problems. The guns are going to still be firing. The cannons are going to be still firing, still firing because we live in this kind of a world. We live in a warfare zone. We need to ask God, Father, remind me to default to calling upon you. Okay? Let's make sure we do that. So the belt of truth. What are these pieces of armor for the first six and the seventh one is a piece. We'll call it that way. 14a, having fastened on the belt of truth. Okay? The first thing, the belt of truth. This belt was worn around the soldier's waist in order to keep his natural attire, his clothing, from getting in the way during the battle. And so he wore the belt so his clothing wouldn't be loosely fitting and so on. And as he is battling, the clothing is getting in his way. You may remember, and I can't remember, it's First um, Peter, and I don't, I don't know if I wrote the reference down. But Peter says, gird up the minds of uh, the loins of your mind, gird it up, tie it down, 
wrap yourself around. What was that about? The men wore long robes. And so when they went into the field to work or whatever, they had to pull this robe up around their legs or whatever and tie it and tie it to themselves so the stuff wouldn't get in their way. So they could freely do what they needed to do without being encumbered by their clothing. We wear natural clothing. And our natural clothing is always going to get in the way of the warfare. Our natural minds and our natural abilities and our natural anything will always get in the way if it's not tied down by the belt of truth. So this means this, that Jesus had to enter the battle prepared with truth. It means that he had to wrap his mind with the belt of truth. Now, what is truth? Remember John 17, 17, Jesus is praying. He says, thy word is true. So we have to be wrapped around and encompassed by the truth, which is the word of God. We have to know that when we enter the fray, we have to know things first and primarily, not about the fray itself, not about our enemies, not even about myself. That's not the first issue. The primary issue of knowledge needs to be, what about God? And yet we tack him on about the third or fourth issue, don't we? We tack him on later. We have to be conscious of God in us and always setting him before us. So when things begin to happen, the first thing we begin to do is to remember the truth that we know about our God from the scriptures. Amen. I'm exasperated with me because it's so easy not to do this, but I have to be reminded to do it and encouraged to do it and instructed to do it, and it corrected to do it. So the first thing is something begins to happen, and our minds go everywhere helter-skelter, correct? What? And we begin to look around, and this is how we live, apart from the Holy Spirit. But our minds must be girded about enwrapped first and primarily with the Word of God. So if my wife, now many of you know Jean. You know she's boisterous. You know she's demanding. You know she's in your face. You know these things about my wife. And you also know, Anton, I'm quiet, unassuming. I'm probably the sweetest guy I know. Did you hear what I, the way I, okay, everybody got that. And so, if my wife says or does something that I believe, and let's say genuinely so, she should not have said or done. Let's say genuinely so. And Jean has been known to do some things that she should not have biblically done. You're saying, yeah, but it's your fault. How many of you thought that? Come on. Well, you see, you looked the wrong place. But... If she does that, my first reaction is about and for its effect upon me. Come on, come on, come on, come on. 
teach with me. Come on. Are you with me? Don't just sit there. This is how we live. The first thing I feel is about me. She's insulted me. She's disrespected me. She's made me feel bad. It's about me. Me. First of all, I need to remember it ain't first about me. It's first about God. God. And when I am attacked this way, because husbands and wives and friends and relatives attack one another, maybe not purposefully, but we do this when we sin. We attack one another. Right, David? You ever been attacked by your wife? You should say yes. (laughs) Carefully say yes. (laughs) Very carefully. Right, River? Have any of you husbands attacked your wives with sin? Yes. And we rise up. And we start running about and trying to deal with it, protecting me. You see, Alice, because it's about me. And we let the belt of truth lie on the floor. Because we haven't The moment my wife says something as an attack against me or does something, I against her or whatever, the moment, that very moment, I need to remember this, James. Father, gird my mind with the truth about you. About you. About God. You see, because the issue isn't about me primarily as believers. The issue is about God. Jesus enters the garden with this divinely empowered strength of keeping his mind, his emotions. Oh, yes, he felt a lot of things, but everything by the Spirit's control in check because he entered having his mind girded about the truth, about God, about God's purpose, about God's means, about God's goal. He kept God ever before him. That's why he could obey. That's the first step, at least. Do we see that? The belt of truth. Jesus' mind was protected from fear and doubt. And our minds need to be protected from fear and doubt, but also from anxiety and anger and bitterness and resentment and frustration and everything else. Why? How? As our minds are girded about with the belt of truth. And that doesn't happen automatically. I have to decide. Just when I get up in the morning, I have to put a belt on my pants. I have to decide to put the belt of truth on and keep it on during the day. So if I'm attacked, I don't throw the belt down and say, now let's go about it. And I have to fight for this. This for me is a fight. It's a fight. 
You see, and the reason it's a fight is because I so by the flesh, so constantly have in my mind that person or those things out there and how is it affected me that that is an overwhelming feeling and preoccupation. But in the midst of it, I have the Holy Spirit. And the moment I call upon the Spirit, really wanting his deliverance in this area. I receive it. And suddenly, everything changes. Not externally, but in my mind. In my mind, things begin to change because now my mind begins to think the truth and understand the truth and see God for who he really is and what he really wants to do and is doing in me. The truth. The truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So I'm going to have to close at this point. But let me ask you this. All of us are in the midst of some kind of battle. Can we say amen? But the question is this. How do I know my mind is on the truth? How do I know I had the belt on? How do I know it's staying on Christ? Read Isaiah 26, what I just said. You will keep him in perfect peace. Did I just read it to you? How do I know it? That in the midst of this battle, no matter what is happening, no matter who's saying what to whom and however, I can experience the peace of the presence of the Lord Jesus in the midst of everything. Does Jesus enter this battle with peace? Does he? Yes. He enters it with peace. And what is peace? What is peace? It's the experience of love. You remember Galatians 5.22? And the fruit of the Spirit is love. The experience of love is peace. The effect of love is, I'm sorry, the effect of love is peace. The experience is joy. And then the expression of the next seven words. Jesus entered the fight with joy and peace. Why? Because you see, he had had the armor of God on. His mind was girded about with the truth, not about what in the world is going to happen and how am I going to do this and why am I going to go and why is that prayer? The truth about God. If we don't, any other preoccupation and consideration primarily is idolatry. Is that right? It's idol flow. It's an idol. If primarily... Your mind is on something or someone else, including yourself. Primarily, 
It's an idol, Darlene. It's an idol. It's an idol. We have to have our mind set on truth. Can we? We can if we put on the belt of truth. Can't we? Can we do it? Yes. Because the Holy Spirit is himself the belt of truth. He is the spirit of truth. Remember that in John 14? How do you know? In the midst of the fray, whether the belt of truth is around your mind or on the floor, maybe you're not even on the floor. You may have locked it away somewhere. I ain't putting that thing on because if I do, I know I have to submit to God and, and that person ain't getting away with that. I'm No, no, that, that happens. That happens. That happens. How do I know? Because I have peace. Whose peace? God's peace. I have joy. Whose joy? God's joy. Let's begin every day with verse 10. What does it say? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And let's begin to receive the might of God by purposefully asking, Father, dress me today in the full armor of God. Amen? Beginning with truth, because God himself is truth. See you next week.